And we're back, Stripe Show Podcast, on a Thursday. You know what that means. Instruction, the busiest day of the week here on the Stripe Show Podcast. Thanks for being with us. I'm your host, Travis Fulton. Stripe Show Podcast brought to you by Encore Golf. Encore designs high-performance golf balls for players of all skill levels and swing speeds. We're going to bring them right in because we have a lot of questions to get through here. I'm looking at them right now. And we're going to do rapid fire. We're going to get after as many as we can in 40 minutes. Shaheen Nakjavani joins me from Canada. How you doing, buddy? Good, man. We got about two, maybe three weeks left in the season. So we're preparing to uh, ship everything indoors for the winter. Yeah, your uh, indoor studio, of course, you film a lot of stuff on Instagram. Popular follow. I'm building a studio right now. It'll be done December 1st indoor. Have a lot of cool stuff in there. So I'm looking forward to that, but uh, we've got, um, we got a lot of questions, man. Um, we're going to rapid fire these. We're going to get after them, but before we, uh, we get to the first one, I want to ask you, Ricky Fowler, um, yeah. played well last week. It was good to see him good from T to green. Uh, I talked on Monday on the podcast. You look at Ricky from the target line. I get a lot of questions about Ricky swing, um, DM to me and, what I tell them is look from the target line view, I don't see a whole lot of difference from face on. You can see definitely a little more of a load up and, you know, and then kind of back to the left. Ricky used to kind of spin away, you know, a little bit and kind of hang left. And a lot of this countered with the steepening of the shaft, he would back up some pressure on the lower back. Um, It seems like we've kind of gone full circle here a little bit with some of the changes they were trying to make. And now just, perhaps a bit simpler in just loading and then getting into the front foot and hitting it. When you watch them, does anything stand out or does it look the same to you? Uh, from down the line, it very much looks like, you know, the same golf swing. Obviously we can always pick apart micro details if we stopped it frame by frame. But I mean, as a whole, if you look at the fluidity of his movement, he's still got that same forearm rotation late in the back swing, very laid off steepens the club a little bit coming down stalls out. I mean, it's maybe on a more micro scale than it used to be, but I mean, this same stuff still exists. When you, when you look at that pattern, because that's not a pattern I've made this comment before. Like there's patterns that as an instructor, you're probably not going to teach. That's one of them. You're not right. going to teach someone to get laid off at the top and then steepen it in transition. If anything, you're going to get them pointing a little bit more across the line and then shallowing in transition when you see a swing like that, because there are some that are watching and listening right now. And they're like, yeah, I'm laid off and steep in a transition, but I'm a 10 handicap. I'm not out there playing for a paycheck. What do I need to do to fix that? I mean, the short answer would be, you can think about it very simply of just trying to feel across the line at the top. You know, not every change that a player makes needs to be so overly like mechanical and analytical. If you just like, you know, try to point the palm of your trail hand, away from your body at the top of the back swing. I talk about that a lot. Just trying to think of where the club is aligned at the top. You can do some mirror work. It's really easy to just get it more down the line uh, without thinking about every little detail about the takeaway and halfway back and all that. Think less positional. Just think more of like, where is it at the top? And, you know, where do you need to feel the opposite in order to change it? Yep. You'd rather have a little cross, wouldn't you, than laid off at the top, generally speaking? So I just posted something about this actually on social media. I think as the swing gets longer, for sure, you know, Mm -hmm. when you're with a driver, naturally you're going to have a longer swing. I mean, that's the reality for 99% of golfers. If you're getting that thing laid off, there's nowhere to keep that club behind you coming down. It's just so hard to do. You're naturally going to steepen it as soon as those hands start to lower. So, Mm -hmm. um, 
for sure, as the clubs get long in your bag, I would prefer it to be more across the line as opposed to more laid off. Yeah. All right. Those are the two questions that I had to start the show. So that's, uh, those are, that's those are me. Now we're going to get into some more difficult ones. And now here's, let me just kind of set this up because Shaheen and I, I could ask any one of these questions and we probably could talk for 30 minutes on it on just one question. Yeah. So we've already had a conversation. We're like, all right, the goal is we're going to, we're going to try to keep them to like 45 second minute answers and give you the short answer and the goods and some things to take away. And then, um, of course, there's always the longer answer that would go with that. But nonetheless, those are the rules. Here comes the first one. And uh, it comes from Andy. How do you find your most functional matchup? I will say this. I, I get this question all the time. The easiest answer is find a coach you trust because I mean, if you're like, if I'm at my house and I'm struggling with something of some form of housework and I'm not a specialist. Yeah. You can go on YouTube and you can maybe be a novice at it and pick up on little details on how to improve. But the reality is you'll never be the most efficient as you would just hiring a professional. So the, the honest answer is find someone you trust who has a good reputation mm -hmm. online and hire them, pay them for them to tell you where it is because the odds are it's going to be difficult for you to do yourself on the internet. This one, um, I can't read it. So I don't know what his name is. So here we go. Please tell me how to hit a shallow fade with a strong grip. Well, for starters, your strong grip means your wrist on the glove hand is likely going to be very cupped just naturally through the stronger grip type. If that wrist actually did get flat, the odds are the face is going to be way too closed anyways. Not going to be very ideal to fade the ball. You'll probably hit some really strong poles doing that. Um, so the honest answer is you need to find a separate way other than the flat wrist in order to make sure that the club gets shallow, obviously bigger turn, deeper hands, all the stuff we always talk about on the internet. And then you got to get very rotary because the truth is with a shallow pattern, if you are not rotating well through the ball, the path is likely going to be more inside out. And for you to hit a fade that not necessarily is going to be the case. So uh, got to make sure that your body's able to turn, got to make sure if you're going to be shallow to do that or else the odds are you're probably not going to succeed. All right. This one comes from Alex. I'll lead us off here. What's your favorite field drill training aid for increased rotation to reduce that in to out path? I see a lot of, you know, with the in to out path, you know, you see the player, you know, the arms kind of fall, the spine backs up a little bit to the right. And then from there, there's no direct, there's really no place for the club to go other than from in to out. So the success of trail bend lead shoulder gets high. So what I'll tell people here and, and to help them kind of turn the corner better there, A, we want to get the shaft still pitched back a little bit, get the shaft laid down and get that lead shoulder working a little bit more down and around rather than falling back this way. And oftentimes when they do that, they feel the right hip kind of sitting a little bit more. There's less of this bump and launch laterally, kind of this sit in the right hip, left shoulder more level through the zone. Now the club can turn the corner back around to the left neutralizing that in to out path. It's interesting sidebar here with Rory because Rory, when he struggles, he struggles with that in to out path. He'll get going too much in the out. You look at him last week. Um, he drove it well, but his irons were terrible. He actually lost four stroke scan approach and one. That's scary. I mean, that's scary how dominant he was off the tee. What that tells me he drove it well. He's got that attack angle working up which helps neutralize that end out path. So he was kind of in that, in that window where he could still hit that little draw, but his irons were still probably a little too in to out. 
the reality with Rory is he'll try to hit a lot of fades. You know, he's, he's trying to hit a lot of fades. That's his feel, but it actually just brings his path Shaheen, like back to like positive one. So he feels like he's hitting a fade, but the ball still has a slight draw to it. That's often the case, right? With good players. I was just having this conversation with Bull Hostler like a couple of weeks ago. And he told me the exact same thing. Literally his tendency is his hands kind of drop behind him and he gets trapped a little too stuck from the inside. And so he likes to feel almost like a low fade in order just to neutralize the rightward path. Doesn't mean he's actually going to hit a low fade. It just means he's going to take an extreme draw bias and kind of reduce it to a stock little draw. Uh, But in order to do that, he's got to feel obviously that fade pattern to shift the path a little bit more left relative to where he was as a right-handed golfer. Yeah. And the, and the feedback you get is, well, why is he trying to hit a fade? He's always hit a draw. And it's like, he's, he needs to feel more of that to bring the cone in. He's feeling a fade. That's right. By no means hitting a stock fade with his irons. All right, here you go. Next question. What's your preferred cue to get weight shifted forward at the right time? I would have to assume this player is talking about their downswing, uh, just yeah. based on kind of how they worded that question. Uh, I feel a cue. I mean, honestly, the simplest drills you can do is um, any sort of walkthrough drills that allows you to apply some form of pressure onto the lead side and transition. You can put like a golf ball under your foot. You can put a water bottle you see a lot of people doing, and it's like they're trying to, you know, flatten the water bottle in transition. Um, And like I said, a lot of walkthrough drills, you know, put your two feet together in the downswing, replant the front foot on the lead side so that it allows you to feel what it's like to actually not only get your weight shifting, getting the pressure being applied at the right spot in transition. There's a lot of good exercises that are relatively simple to do that can allow you to feel not backing up, but actually moving forward on the way down. Is there a book that gave you the best insight about golf teaching? My honest answer? No. Yeah. I have not seen to this day one book that I would say Back to front, front to back. I like all the information that's on it. Every book has some little tidbits of info that are really useful and some pieces of information that I generally disagree with or that I think are actually wrong. You know, a lot of players post books after they're done. Half of that information is purely field-based. It's not necessarily what was actually taking place. Um, And so to me, like generally speaking, no, there's zero books out there I would typically recommend as a whole for someone to actually learn from. Right. Good answer. I agree with that. Here's one here. Hold on a sec. Where'd it go? There it is. Here, I'll lead us off on this one. Hitting pushes, distance control issues with wedges, high shots. Well, sounds like a club face open and we're coming down steep and then we're trying to save it at the bottom, adding loft. Sometimes you add a lot of loft. Sometimes you don't, which controls the distance. And of course, with the open face, you're going to get it off to the right. I see a lot, even just with wedges, we know they're steeper. But even with these controlled wedges, let's look at the face first, get the face more prepared. I would ideally like to see it going back at the face, perhaps a bit more shut if it is open. Still get the turn working around you. Just don't lift the arm up and down, even though it's steeper. And then from there, work on some forward shaft lean, try to control it down, hit some three-quarter types of flighted wedges. And that'll help you not only directionally, but also returning the same amount of loft each time and controlling the distance. All right. Next one drills to fix shanks from coming too far from the inside. The easy way to do it is to try to feel the opposite. And 
it's not just like, you know, there's a lot of drills on the internet of obviously like you put two golf balls on the floor, you set up to the farther one, and then you try to hit the inside one. I would rather a player actually mechanically understand what's taking place. When you are hitting the hosel, your sweet spot of your club head is moving away from you in the downswing. So the number one priority you need to understand here is you have to learn how to train the sweet spot to actually get closer to your body in order to hit the center of the club face. So when I see golfers like just lining up off the toe as a bandaid, I, I cringe at that, honestly, because what you're doing is you're telling your body in order for me to hit the sweet spot here, I'm just accepting the fact that the sweet spot is going to move away from me. You're not actually correcting the problem. You're just hoping that the setup is enough to make sure you just somehow don't hit the heel. So what I would tell you is instead, although it can be scary at first, I would actually a player who hits shanks lines up off the hosel. Because what you're doing now is you're training your body to say, hey, if I want to hit the center of the club face, the only way for me to do that, I got to take that sweet spot. And rather than hitting it here, if I line up here, well, I got to learn how to pull that sweet spot now closer to my body in order to actually hit the center. What you're doing is you're actually correcting the problem. You're training yourself how to bring that club head into a position where you can strike the center of the club face. I know it's scary at first when I say this, but trust me, that is a far better way of doing it than just lining up off the toe and hoping for the best. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. The old shank. We said it here today on the podcast. Said it a couple I'm, times. I'm not afraid of the S word at all. I'll tell you I'll say it all the time. <laughs> I've said it three times, I believe already. <laughs> all right. How do you get the club more in front of you, of your body on the downswing? He says at impact, but I'm assuming he's meaning on the downswing because the club's going to be in front of you at impact. Right. So the, answer is it's not so much about the club that I like to look at. It's more about the hands, mm-hmm. you get the hands working in front of you in the downswing, your club by default will not get stuck behind you. That's like the way that people have to think about it. Now, how are you going to do that? Well, there are several ways to do it. Number one, you can just feel like your hands aren't as deep in the backswing. If your hands, instead of being back here are a little taller, naturally they're going to end up working a little more in front of you coming down, which means by default, the club is going to work more in front of you coming down. It's the simplest way to go about it. Now, if you would rather not just sacrifice it and work on the backswing and you like the arm structure you have, well, then we would have to train you how to get those hands to work more out in the downswing in order to not get stuck with the club back. How do you do that? Well, a lot of rotation drills, making sure the torso is turning in the downswing, making sure kind of like Travis spoke about earlier, the lead side doesn't elevate so much where the trail side drops a lot that usually causes the hands to get stuck behind you, which causes the club to get stuck behind you. So the way to think about this is we need to not necessarily think about the club working in front of us. We need to think about the hands working in front of us. If you do that, you won't get stuck. You won't have those problems. That's a good question and a good answer because I think sometimes I, I seem to get this conversation from time to time from the telecast. People who are watching gets the club stuck behind him. We hear that a lot. The reality yeah. is, is most people listening to this podcast right now need to get the club more behind them on the downswing. That's the reality, right? Because they're getting the club in transition, like, you know, either way out, out, you know, the club out in front of them or too steep in transition and they need to learn to pitch the shaft in transition. Now they're like, damn, the club's way behind me. You know, like that's good. Like you need to feel that back there because now from there, now we can turn, we can, we can open up. So that's always one of those. We hear a lot, the club's stuck behind. That's a bad thing. 
And the reality is, is no, 90, 90% of these people listening need to feel the club pitched more back behind them. I mean, the, I mean the truth is that thought process of making sure the hands and club work in front of your body in the downswing is very much a good player's pattern. Yeah. Typically draws the ball too much. If you're not right. falling into that very specific category, the odds are that's not a good feel for you. Yeah. All right. Here's one. If you had one view, what's better down the line or face on? I prefer if I had to pick, I'd probably pick down the line. Yeah. I agree. And to be honest, a lot of the issues that you don't see uh, down the line, you can probably pick up on based on the information you're given down the line. Like I can see how strong the grip is from down the line, just looking at the face angle and the wrist and how they work together. I don't need to see them actually face on seeing their grip. Now I might not pick up on every little micro detail, but I mean, it's good enough for me to get that information. Right. I'm having trouble shortening my backswing. I'll give you a couple here. One is, you know, sometimes I mean, first off, I'm probably lengthening out more backswings than I'm shortening. So that's always a relative question. But if you are getting long and there's times for that, you know, there's a time you'll see the player extending too far to the left. You get this reverse. And of course, the hands and the club are going to go with it. Um, I see a lot of, you know, that radial where they get a lot of that cupping in the lead wrist. And now they really hands come off the club a little and then it gets very long that way as well. Um and then even that inside, you know, you see the guy kind of roll it in and then kind of up and then get long going that way as well. So there's a few factors I think to look at. I think that extension left, that reverse, certainly if you're doing that, you, you need to fix that. That is not a good move. And then, you know, oftentimes, Shaheen, when you start, you know, taking that grip and you start kind of flattening him out a little bit, the heel pad on the thumb kind of pushing. Now they kind of feel like, okay, I have less movement here. And it's more structured this way away from me and with my spine in a reasonable position. Okay. Now I feel like I've done less and it feels shorter. How would you add to that? Uh, for sure. Wrist angles is a massive part of it. I mean, every single golfer who gets really, really long typically comes with a lot of extension on that glove hand. Kind of like you said, I mean, it's really hard for me and you can just do this as a test with any person in front of you. Like it's really hard for you to try to bow your wrist as much as possible and then try to lengthen your swing as much as possible. You're going to yeah. find it extremely difficult. Most golfers do not have that range of motion on their wrist mobility to get there. So shortening the swing up with the wrist is really easy. I would say a lot of golfers get really long a lot of times because of an over rotation of the upper body because they're not actually using their hinging pattern correctly. You know, if I, I'm very dead handed and I don't hinge the club very long, I'm probably going to stop super short. So the only way for me to lengthen my swing in that scenario is to like over rotate mm -hmm. the body. And you see that happen a lot with high handicappers, especially. Is staying down good advice? No, to be honest, I wouldn't even say it's bad advice. I say it's useless advice more than anything. I don't like it necessarily when people say it's bad information because there are a lot of golfers who early extending come up and maybe the thought of staying down on it could actually help them. Now, I'm not saying that's the reality for most golfers. I'm saying there's probably a small percentage of golfers that it helps and there's a small percentage of golfers that it hurts. And then there's about 75% of people in between that it does absolutely nothing to and nothing changes and it's useless. Do you feel like you are constantly overshooting greens or coming up short because you choose the wrong club? Well, if that's the case, today is your lucky day because I'm proud to announce my brand new partnership with the boys over at Pinned Golf. Their brand new Ace Rangefinder is amazing, and it's only $199. I've been using it for a couple weeks now, and I was blown away with the quality. It has a slope technology, pin-locked vibration technology, 
so you know exactly when you are locked onto your target tour lever accuracy. And best of all, it is powered by a USB charge so you can forget about those little batteries every other rangefinder makes you buy. One 45-minute charge lasts you 50-plus rounds. I love it. Our friends over at Pin Golf are hooking up all of our listeners with $25 off and free shipping when you use code Stripe Show. That's code Stripe Show. I'm telling you, for $175, you simply cannot beat the Ace Rangefinder. Head out over to pingolf.com and get yourself the Ace and get dialed in. How do I hit the ball longer by getting my backswing to be maximized? Sorry. I, it, yeah, that was it right there. Interesting worded question. How do I... How do, how do you let me let me rephrase it here? Yeah. How do you lengthen out the backswing to, to maximize distance? I mean, making a bigger turn is far and away the easiest way to lengthen out your backswing. You would typically see most golfers, especially those who slice the ball, usually aren't loading very well in the backswing. They're not creating a big range of motion. They don't have enough extension on the trail side of their body, specifically the legs. You see a lot of these golfers keeping their trail knee very bent. That restricts their pelvis turn. It gets very level and it doesn't rotate very far. Then the upper body, as a result of that, can't rotate very far. The hands elevate. Everything stops really weird. They cut across the ball and it's a nightmare. So if you want to hit the ball farther, and there's a lot of added benefits to that as well, uh, like allowing you to shallow the club a lot easier, making a bigger turn by far the number one way to go with that. Okay. And the turn can come from the hips. It's not just thoracic and upper. It's, you know, turn, the hips got turned. I would argue in most cases, I actually focus on the legwork more than I focus on the upper body, but the upper body also increases the range of motion because of it. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. This is just from me here and reflecting from time on the tee, lengthening people out, getting them to turn better. Cause this is a common question. Um, especially as we get older, we tend to kind of hang down this way and hang out here and like turn and we can't, okay, that's as far as I can go. Yeah. You know, and how do I, man, I'm just like, it's almost like, people come to you in desperation where it's like their swing has gotten so crunched and condensed. And then you're like, okay, let's turn the right hip and let's let your right leg straighten up some. And then let's extend your spine some and really kind of allow your hands to kind of work back behind you. And as they start recruiting the right hip and they start lengthening out the spine, extending, they're like, man, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm getting taller. I feel like I'm lifting. You know, and oftentimes you'll, you'll film it and you'll show it to them. You draw a line. They're like, damn, I'm not, you know, but they feel like they are. They feel like they're kind of elongating up some. Do you get that a lot when you're lengthening people out like that? For sure. I would say that the reality is some of them probably were actually going down in the backswing with the body. And so maybe to some degree they are elevating relative to where they were, but in reality, it just means now that they're stable and they're no longer lowering, right? Different way to look at it. I would also say uh, another way to really help with that is use your feet flaring to your advantage. You know, not just, I know that a lot of people talk about like, Hey, flare the front foot out so that you can rotate through the ball easier. Well, why don't you flare the back foot out so that you can rotate in the backswing easier? I'm somebody who's got a herniated disc in my lower back. I have a torn ACL on my left knee. If I don't flare my feet out, I can assure you my range of motion is probably going to be reduced quite a bit because it puts too much pressure on me. So if you want to alleviate some of that pressure and you want to extend your range of motion, use your feet flaring to your advantage. Why do my practice swings look better slash different from when the ball is in front of me when making changes? I'll start with that. I mean, you're making a change. Mm -hmm. Something's new. Something's different. 
Okay. Let's just say you're learning to turn your right hip and extend your spine, just like we were talking about. Yeah. And you go through a pattern where you're training with Shaheen and I, and we've got you in the back and we're doing it without a ball. And we're doing these drills to get you to open up, lengthen out. And oftentimes when I'm doing this, I'll exaggerate. I'll push the envelope. If they lift a little bit, fine. You know, and then put the club in their hand and you do it and they look at it and like, God, I don't look that much different, you know? And it's, it's like, I'm not doing it. I find the body movements, they tend to get them a little bit easier than perhaps changing the face angle or the direction of the shaft or something. Oftentimes you, you, when you change something at the top and you can't see it, right. Let's say they're trying to get the face more shut and they rehearse it and they rehearse it and they rehearse it and the face is shut, the face is shut. And then they go to hit it. Now the face is like, Oh my God, it opened up again. Right. So for me, Shaheen, when that's the case and there's a disconnect, like I've got to get them to do it at a speed that they can do it and that they can quantify it. Right. It's like, I did it at a speed and I know undoubtedly I shut the face. I did it at a speed where I know undoubtedly my right hip climbed and my spine extended and we validate it with the video and they can see it and they're starting to feel it at a speed that might be 10%, 20%, who knows, but they did it and they quantified it. And then they're able to quantify it old way versus new way. Now it's like, okay, now I want you to take it back with the face open. Now I want you to take it back with the face shut. Can you do that? And show them they're like, oh yeah. You know, so that, that's kind of, to me, some of the learning process, you got to heal it down sometimes for a player who's just, they go to hit it and it's like, man, it don't look any different. What do you think? I would say number one, you can remove the word sometimes. I think a large, large majority of golfers should be slowing down the process a little bit more in the early stages of a swing change. I am all for adding speed when the time comes for you to add speed in the latter stages of your session. After a week or two of practicing, you can do maybe less exaggerated block practice. But when you are starting out, you are trying to feel something different, okay? When, in order for you to do that, you need to create awareness spatially into what you're doing differently, right? So like you said, going to the old pattern again, going back to the new one, bouncing back and forth allows the player to feel that, right? Now, if all I'm going to do is some sort of like quick pre-shot rehearsal of something new I'm trying to accomplish, and then I go there at full speed, the odds of me being able to achieve that are very small. And even if I do achieve it, the odds of me being able to even feel and confirm that I did the new move is so low, right? If a player turns back at you and they need to revert to a video in order to see if they actually did it well or not, the odds are they're moving too fast when they're mm -hmm. trying to make change. You should be able to know right after doing that move when you're first working on something that you did it without having to actually resort to a video to know that you did it or not. I would say that as a starting point. Right. Um, and a lot of times, keep in mind, our intent completely changes when a golf ball is on the floor. Right. Like all of a sudden now we have a target we're worried about. All of a sudden now we have the strike location on the club face that we're worried about. When these things come into play, we tend to get really tense. We tend to speed up. Our tempo gets thrown off. Everything now becomes a worry, a fear. We get very defensive. So in order for us to make sure that we don't stay in that trap of being very defensive, Slow things down. Like you said, 10, 20%, grab a nine iron in your hands rather than your stock shot of 150 yards, maybe hit it a hundred yards for the first five, 10 balls, trying to feel out that process. Once right. you do that and you feel like you can confirm it and you got it on video, then gradually speed up. And then towards the end of the session, that's when it's game time, right? Last 10, 15% of your session, spend it on actually doing full speed and then yeah. try to see where your progress is and assess it that way. Yeah. I think to the teachers listening and watching, don't be afraid to get away from the ball, get away from the ball. 
you know, do these patterns away, have the conversation. I also think don't, don't be afraid to get in the trenches with the student and, and you don't need the early validation of hitting a ball and like, see, there it is. Like you don't need early validation, you know, like get in there, get in the trenches, get them training, get them feeling it, get them exaggerating it, slow it down. And then eventually kind of get the ball introduced and, and things will start to iron themselves out. Um, and of course that process takes longer for some than others, but you've got to bridge that gap um, at some point. And some changes are certainly more difficult than others, as you know, from years of experience. I have one follow-up I want to add to this because I okay. think it's an interesting conversation for people to have. I like to separate swing changes into two categories. There's technique and then there's skill. Okay. Now people always ask me all the time, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, like what's the difference between skill and technique? Well, to me, technique is the actual movement pattern you're employing when you're actually hitting the golf ball and skill is completely different. It's your comfort level with that movement pattern. It's your ability to get back to the ball. It's your ability to strike the center of the face. It's your ability to trust that movement pattern. All of those things are your skill with that pattern. And then there's a the technique side. You might actually improve the technique side of it in the early stages of a swing change, but you're going to be so uncomfortable. You're not going to trust it. You're not going to be able to necessarily find your way back to the golf ball that your skill is going to be reduced a little bit in the early stages. So just because you make a better mechanical movement doesn't mean you're immediately going to see perfect results. So don't worry so much about hitting this perfect shot right off the bat with the swing change because the odds are sometimes it takes time for the skill to increase. And once it does, then you combine that with the technical change you made and you're going to be hitting the ball. Obviously there's a net positive at the end of all that. You're going to be hitting yeah. the ball a lot better, but that's not necessarily always an immediate satisfaction. Right. That's right. All right. Be cool. If you guys discuss a player's approach to a round when his ball striking is off. I just had this conversation with one of my mini tour guys recently. Um, he literally walked off the course and told me he shot 64, 65 and felt like he had his D game on the golf course. <laughs> Like, first of all, stay, stay in school. I mean, that's the first thing I understood from that. Cause like, my goodness, if a player is feeling their C or D game and they're shooting 64, 65, we're all doomed. We got no chance. Right? Players are so good nowadays. Um, how do you manage around a golf when you do that? Well, first of all, the first thing you have to have is an awareness into what the consistency of that miss has been when you're struggling, right? If your miss is always a big push cut, you're not really double crossing it, hitting pull draws. Your miss has been like a starting right, going right ball. Well, then what you have to do is now you have to take a uh, mentality like what Scott Fawcett really employs with all of his players. Understand where your dispersion has been missing from. Find the center point of that dispersion and start to aim into a safer area. And this is super important because I, what I find a lot of people do is they don't adapt very well when they're on the golf course. You go on the golf course, you're struggling with a certain shot shape. You're still trying to play the same shot with the same narrow target in mind, hoping that you're going to pull it off when the reality is you're probably not going to pull it off that day. Your timing's not there, right? So play into your misses. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't think you should just like hold forward and like put a firm planted foot on the ground and just say, no, no, I'm going to pull it off on this next ball. Sometimes you just don't got it. You don't got it. The goal is understanding, building awareness into where your misses are, both in terms of your strike, in terms of the actual ball fly. And then from there, starting to play to maybe safer targets that allows for the dispersion of that miss that you're dealing with on that particular day, I think is super important. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I like that answer a lot. It just, even my own game, I find myself gravitating to that more now, you know, just in the old knowledge of not only from my, you know, teaching that, but also just my own game of being like, don't be so hard headed. Like you've got the ball doing this. You got to adapt. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so it's like, we're in this too now. Like, you know, we, we play sub two and I find myself saying, come on, you know, 
you got to adapt because your timing's off. Like you're just not hitting the shot that you, that you normally would. So you've got to take a safer, much safer. Approach. I mean, I'm, I'm totally okay with aiming maybe five, 10 feet further away from your yeah. typical target that you would aim. If your ball striking is not there, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. Your goal is to make sure you're making four. If you're a good player and not making five, how do you do that? Well, yeah, maybe you take away some opportunities of making birdie, but if there's anything we've learned about scoring, it's that it's not about making birdies. It's about not making bogeys. If you play to safer targets and guarantee less bogeys, you can hold scores uh, together pretty well. Divots to the right. Is it a big issue? Right-handed player. So, um, you know, divots are, in my opinion, are more indicative of swing direction than they are club path. Right now, swing direction, as we know, is not necessarily just the direction, the club path you're swinging into the ball. It's that relative to the attack angle you're coming into the ball from. Now, what I will say is if swing directions get too far right for a right-handed player, especially with, well, I don't even say especially with irons, just in general as a whole. Yeah, it could be problematic. So in a situation like that, you can probably make some strong ideas that players likely stuck too far from the inside. It's not always the case, but in you know a large majority of them, that is going to be the problem. Well, learn to try to neutralize that. How do you neutralize that? Try to feel more fade bias, maybe shift your alignment a little bit in your setup. Try to work away from that divot being so far right. Now, I will say if your divot is getting left, it's a completely different question, right, to have because – Obviously, like I said, swing direction actually could be left for a player who's drawing the ball. That's a whole other conversation to have. We're going to confuse people. I don't want to get into that here. Mm -hmm. Let's just say if your divot is too far to the right as a right-handed golfer, the odds are you're swinging too far from the inside. you got to learn how to feel a little more fade bias to neutralize that. Yeah. Rory. Any strategy you prefer for shots between 80 to 120 yards? See, I like... Shaheen, my approach here from what I've found and speaking to the amateurs, this is a different question, probably even for tour players, um, different answer, but I find people like hundred yard shots, you know, 90 yard shots. They've got their sand wedge full bore and it's like, you know, and it's up in the air, you know, it's way up there. Not always. So yeah, my approach for them is to look, take more club and let's control it. Let's control the trajectory. Let's have and or develop a quote unquote knockdown approach wedge shot or what feels like that. It may feel like an approach wedge, but for most or knockdown, but they look at it, it's still got adequate trajectory. It's just not straight up in the air, right? It's just not steep and adding loft and we're coming up short because we're trying to full blast a 56 versus maybe a 52 and knock it down. That's my approach for most amateur golfers. It doesn't always apply, but when you develop that knockdown three-quarter controlled wedge, it helps that, but it tends to help a lot of the rest of the ball striking too. I mean, if there's one thing we've learned with really good wedge play, not even just necessarily on tour, just as a whole, controlling your launch conditions is arguably the most important thing in that situation, right? It's not about how much speed you're applying. It's not about what club you have in your hands. It's can you launch it at a window that is acceptable to be able to control your spin rate because you control your launch and your spin. That's how you control your distance. And then you can be super accurate with your wedges. So how do you do that? Well, taking more club, certainly you can cut some speed off it and you can control your launch conditions that way. And obviously with the longer club, you're probably going to have a little less spin. It'll be easier to stop the ball in the green. Another thing I'll say, just as a general rule of thumb, wedges are going to be the shortest clubs in your bag. The head of the wedge is going to feel the heaviest. If you're swinging that thing super long, super fast to try to get your distance out of that club with the weight of that club on such a short swing, it's going to feel super all over the place and really weird. I, I know very few golfers who can pull that shot off with any sort of consistency. And this actually includes tour players. So what I would say is, 
yeah, learn to control your launch conditions. That's how you control your spin. That's the best way to do it. If it's by taking longer clubs like Travis suggested, I mean, that's certainly one way to be very successful at it. I have no problems with that at all. How do you increase ball speed? Increasing ball speed is all about creating more compression, right? Now, how do we create more compression? You have a stronger club face that allows you to create a little bit more compression. Obviously, if you have a weaker club face, you're going to add loft. When you add loft, the ball's going to balloon really high in the air. It's not going to be very compressed. You're going to hit it higher and spinnier. So the goal is we got to launch it lower with a little bit less spin. That's how you create more compression. That's how you increase your ball speed. Stronger club face conditions allows for a little bit more lean to the shaft. You combine those two pieces together, you're going to create as much ball speed as you need. How much of each practice session should be on drills? Depends on what stage of a swing change you're at. If you're at an earlier stage of a swing change, meaning you're a beginner at it and you're just starting to apply a swing change, probably a decent amount of it, you know, half of your session should be on drill work. I mean, this is block practice. You are learning a new movement pattern. It's necessary. As you get more comfortable with it, that completely changes, right? Instead of being at 50, 50, Towards the end of it, you're two weeks into a swing change. Maybe it's, you know, 75, 25. You're doing some variance in there. You're not doing a drill for 25 minutes and then full swings for 75 minutes, but you're doing maybe five minutes of drills and then 10, 15 minutes of shots and then five minutes of drills, 10, 15 minutes of shots. So that answer and that percentage completely changes depending on how comfortable you are and at what stage of a swing change you're at. How do you flex your lead wrist more at the top? I mean, there's two ways to go about it. Number one, if your grip is too strong, the odds are you're not going to do it. So it's about understanding grip strength and how that relates to your wrist angles. Obviously, if I grip the club very, very strong here, right, Mm -hmm. I'm going to preset my wrist very cupped. When I go to the top of my swing, the odds are my wrist is going to be very cupped. Obviously, if we weaken our hands, um, you know, not necessarily grip pressure, but the positioning of the hand on the club, naturally, we're going to have a lot flatter of a wrist position at the top. If you want to flatten your wrist, making sure the grip isn't too strong is super important. I would say there are very easy drills to do. There's a hanger drill. There's maybe 150,000 dr- videos of this drill on the internet, right? The Watson Golf is the product that I personally use. It doesn't mean it's the only one. It's just one that I've been accustomed with. And, um, you know, you can find that video on YouTube all over the place. You attach a hanger to the drill, the goal uh, to the club. The goal is to apply pressure on the baseline of that tool to apply it into the forearm. That allows you to train how to bow that wrist. There's like, you know, you can put a T in the watch. And obviously, if you cup the wrist, that T is going to be stabbing you in that area. It can be very painful. It can train you how to change the wrist mechanics. There's a lot of them on the Internet that you yeah. can do that are pretty easy. These three fingers can help. Right. You can feel those kind of like when they, when you go that way, they feel like they're curling under more this way. Just applying a pressure of like trying to flex out the inside of your, of your upper forearm is really easy to do. If I flex that, what am I going to do? I'm going to go like this to flex it. What am I doing to the wrist all of a sudden? I'm a lot more flexion. Yeah. It's amazing when a player does that and they're like, okay, God, I, I, I feel crazy. It feels bowed. It feels like Dustin Johnson. And then you show it to them. They're like, it still has a little, extension in it i mean there's some that go from like 30 <laughs> degrees of extension to 10 but to them yeah. it obviously feels like they're like yeah i don't know if there's a bigger component that changes the course of a player technically and then perhaps long term the skill they can develop from it than just taking a player into some flexion in the lead wrist now that's a very general statement i understand that but we're talking to the masses of golfers here right that want to get better and are playing or shooting a hundred or whatever the case may be, but you kind of get them just structured to some degree at the top and or in early transition 
wrist angles. Off you go. Club face gets under control. It's a lot harder to steepen the shaft when the wrist is in a flatter position. You get the club more shallow and you get the club face more closed and every single slicer turns into draws for the most part. And if you combine that with a little more turn and get the hands deeper, it's like you found the golden puzzle of 99% of players. It's really not that hard to figure out. Our job's really not that hard. There's, there's challenging movements, but like at the end of the day, like most patterns, it's like, it's, it's, it's kind of tell people it's like, it's the common cold, you know, like you go into the doctor and it's like, yeah, I got a little bit in my nose and my throat. And they're like, you know, it's funny how, like, if you think about (laughs) a job of a doctor, it can sound so complex and there's so much at it. But if you think about the majority of the people that they're dealing with every day, it's probably such minor details of people that are worried that it's probably rinse repeat for them, just like it is for anyone else, isn't it? Yeah, I'm sure. And now there's more complex issues. Of course, they have to get in and, you know, make sure it's not something more serious. And there's certainly more difficult patterns for us to, to work on that take a little bit more training. But at the end of the day, like what you said, my point was, is, you know, you start just building in wrist angles and a little bit of depth and a reasonable turn and pivot, like, all right, we'll play off. Like you'll figure, you'll figure it out from there. You know, I always tell people like, look, I could take two twin brothers, take this guy, Take him to the top, extend the wrist, face is wide open. Take this guy, take him up to the top, a little more flexion, face is square to slightly shut. Now you two go play. And don't, don't, you can't, you can't learn anything else. Just go play you two and come back in a month. And the guy that comes back with the fit, this and the fit, I mean, it's, it's like night and day difference in what's going to happen subconsciously around from hitting it and seeing the ball do what it does that what you got to start doing to kind of make all that to keep it somewhat in front of you on the golf course. So it's amazing how you can change the course of the action through wrist angles and really give people a lot of hope and develop a, a ton of skill off of what that means in the way of face and shaft preparation. And then what that means in the way the body's got to rotate and what that means in shaft lean and like all these things just start like, they just start kind of starting to line up from there. All right, let's do a couple more. Yeah. Pull this back up. Um, oh, we already did that one. This one is, I would love to see your trail arm drill and keep throwing the club behind me. (laughs) Trail arm drill of keep throwing the club behind me. You would have to assume he's talking about creating more external rotation in the downswing. Right. Talking about trying to keep the club more behind him. Um, You know, really simple drill. You can do hold the club with just your trail hand. I'll try to back up this camera just so I can make it Mm -hmm. pretty clear for players. Hold the club with just your trail hand, take the lead hand, take the top of the lead hand, tuck it behind the tricep. And all you're trying to do here is if I show it down the relatively down the line position and you're loading in the back. So you're applying a pressure down and in from the top of that hand towards the trail elbow to keep it more tucked in that can create more external rotation, which as a result can really help a player keep the club more behind them. So I would have to assume that's the drill that he's talking about. Have you ever seen so much external rotation in the backswing that the shaft steepens on the downswing. Of course. I mean, there are players who do who max it out in the backswing. They get the club into an extremely laid off position, way too flat. And there's nowhere to go. Keep in mind. I always tell people it's not the position that's important. It's the direction in order for you to make sure that the club can get shallow coming down. It needs room to directionally go there. If the club is already maxed out in that direction, how do you possibly want to keep it there? As soon as you come down and apply a force to the handle of the club, you're going to steep in that shaft coming down. Yep. I'll see that once in a while. For sure. 
I mean, that relates really back to our question of Ricky and getting too laid off. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that's the only reason why he's laid off, but I certainly don't think that helps. Last question. I can hit balls right hand only, but right hand only very well. But when I put it left hand only, no bueno. I, mean, I would have to assume that that player has too much release and throw to the trail hand. And when they take the lead hand, they don't understand how to keep their wrist flatter, how to get the club face under control, how to get the club more behind them so that they can come into the golf ball. Lead hand drills, I find, are very beneficial for full swing mechanics because it trains you how to get the lead wrist moving mechanically in a way that gets the club and the club face in a position to strike the ball well. Trail hand drills can be really good for short game, not so much the inverse of that, right? Like if you take lead hand only drills and bring it to short game, you might start flattening the wrist, bringing the leading edge into play, digging, creating all sorts of problems, not using the bounce. That's bad for the short game, but it can be really helpful for players for the full swing, how to train that shaft lean and that stronger ball speed and compression. So um, if you are struggling with full swing mechanics, I would say focus more so on lead hand drills, in my opinion. Fair enough. I think we got through most all of them. Nice. Awesome. Easy. That was a solid. These are easy stuff. I mean, yeah. This is good though. Like the people, these are, there's a lot there to think about. And I think as people are listening to this podcast, you're like, where do I, where do I fit into that? You know, we may have hit the light may have came on on a few of these questions. That's me, you know, kind of stuff, but we're going to, we're going to do it again. Um, and, uh, I love these. I love the quick hitter questions. They're more personable. Hopefully we got to, um, we got to your questions and um, fall golf is here. What a great time to work on your game, right? If you've got a place where you can go and hit balls um, or even just do stuff at, at your, at your house, you're looking at the guy that does the most online lessons in the world on skillless golf. You can go follow him on Instagram. It's a great follow S H keen golf S H K E E N golf, or just type in Shaheen Noctavani and go follow him. And uh, that was fun, man. Anything else on your mind that uh, you want to get out there? uh, Like, just like irking you, like you had this conversation and it's like, God, how many times I got to have this conversation with this person on this particular pattern? The hell. I'll tell you what, I had a guy come and see me for a lesson. I told him to work on something, came back three months later. I told him the exact same thing again, told him to go work on it, came back three months later, told him the exact same thing again. He contacted me for a fourth lesson and I told him to go find a new coach. If you aren't going to do the work that the person is telling you, I am not at the stage anymore where I need to take every single student. I'm very grateful about that. That comes and sees me. If you're not going to do the work, I'm telling you, you're going to keep repeating the same process and the same mistakes and you're not committed to it. And we see the results improve when you are doing the new move in front of you, but you're not doing the work after the fact at that, at some point in time, your coach is going to get very frustrated and they're not going to want to teach you anymore. And that's the situation I was in with that player. So if there's anything that you can do as a listener, who's a student, please be open to what the coach is telling you and please do the work afterwards. I cannot sit there and hold your hand and do the work for you. Unfortunately. Fair enough. And on that Shaheen, thank you. Tribe show podcast on a Thursday back tomorrow. See you. Let's take a second to talk about the folks over at Encore Golf. Encore has earned a reputation across the golf industry and with golfers everywhere for its combination of value, performance, and customer service. Their team in Buffalo, New York, 
is flipping the script on golf technology through perimeter-weighted balls made with the high-density particles and proprietary nanotransitional layer offering players enhanced accuracy, control, and distance. Encore recently added the Vero X1 to its suite of award-winning golf balls, one that already included the Golf Digest Gold-Rated Elixir and Low Compression Avant 55. Through its full suite of golf balls, Encore can help transform any golfer's game. Visit EncoreGolf.com backslash Travis Fulton for more info about Encore and start revolutionizing your game. Now back to the Stripe Show podcast. 